0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough? To think about Him.
1: Episode 159, Aaron Arunder on Ontological Pluralism and the Trinity. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a talk that I had the privilege to hear at the Eastern Division meeting of the Society of Christian Philosophers held at Rutgers University in October of 2016. The presenter is Aaron Arender, who is a PhD student in philosophy at Syracuse University. In this talk, he suggests what he thinks is a better way to understand Trinitarian theology. But before we get to his presentation, I feel like I need to give you some context and help you understand what's going on here a philosopher is an expert on what is consistent with what a philosopher per se needn't be an expert in theology or history or in what counts as an orthodox christian theology but if you want to know is the trinity doctrine logically consistent with itself a philosopher would be the person to ask In some of my published work, I've argued that if you interpret Trinity formulas in a certain way, they turn out to be self-refuting because they're self-inconsistent. In other words, it's an incoherent set of claims. It's a set of claims that, as a matter of logic, could not be true. On the other hand, some ways of understanding the traditional Trinity formulas, I have argued, are arguably self-consistent, they are arguably coherent, but they have other problems. Either that's not what the tradition meant, or it doesn't fit well with the Bible, or with the creeds, or with whatever you think are the authoritative statements. In the last 40 or 50 years, Christian philosophers have looked at the Trinity and said, yeah, I could see why you would think that's incoherent. But what if we make certain distinctions, and here the philosopher brings in some idea from logic, or metaphysics, or theory of knowledge, and then they show if you interpret the traditional trinity formulas in this way, then the inconsistency we were pointing at goes away. In one of my published papers I've called these rational reconstructions of the trinity. We're not necessarily saying this is the correct way to interpret the formulas. It's one way of responding to charges that the Trinity is incoherent, that it's logically self-contradictory. One argues, for all we know, the Trinity might mean this, and then this is some precisely articulated understanding of the formulas that are demanded by Trinitarian tradition. If this is what the Trinity means, then it's not demonstrably self-contradictory. That is, one can make a case that this set of claims is coherent. That might not seem like a very important project to you. You'd like a lot more out of your Trinitarian theology than that it's not obviously incoherent, but it's a defensive maneuver against objections that it's obviously contradictory. Well, if it amounts to this, this sophisticated set of claims that I've carefully vetted, carefully applied some current philosophical technology to, if this is what it means, then arguably it is coherent. Our presenter today is doing something like that. He suggests that the key to understanding the Trinity is the idea of ontological pluralism. Ontological pluralism, as he explains, is the view that there are fundamentally different ways of existing. It's not really clear to the average person what this means or what the implications of it are. If you're a philosophy major or philosophy graduate student or a professor, you will follow most of this talk. To help the rest of you, let me give just a little bit of background. Suppose someone says that every dolphin is a mammal. That's a truth, right? Every dolphin is a mammal. The way this gets translated into standard logic, standard since the early 20th century, is to say for any X, if X is a dolphin, then X is a mammal. Now, what domain are we talking about? The domain there is supposed to be wholly unrestricted or universal. We're saying for any X whatever, for anything that's real, anything in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth, anything of any kind, for any X whatever, unrestricted, if that X is a dolphin, then that X is a mammal. That seems true. That seems unproblematic. Note that it's different from ordinary language. Usually, when you say a word like all in an ordinary language like English or German or Spanish or Chinese, usually it's understood that there is some restricted domain that's in play there. You mean all somethings, not just everything, whatever. So if I say all people know who Donald Trump is, now if that's going to be true, I must restrict the domain. Right? It can't be all people whatsoever only going to be all people who are living today and who are informed about the news and the election in america it's not going to include somebody living on a tiny little island in the middle of the pacific with no social media or you know daily news updates there are going to be some people like that who don't know who donald trump is but you might think what i said is true all people know who donald trump is because you're understanding that restriction to a certain class of people. So my point is just that this unrestricted quantifier isn't something that we're familiar with from everyday language, but it does play an important role in how logic is understood in recent times. This universal quantifier for any x, whatever, is represented in logic by an upside-down capital A. There's also the particular quantifier, the existential quantifier, represented by a backwards e. If I say that some dolphin is smart... That is translated into logic as, there is some X, which is a dolphin, and which is smart. We're saying that there exists an X, which has those two features. There exists an X where? Well, just any old where, everywhere. In reality, there is something which is those two things, a dolphin and smart. So here again, we're assuming that one can quantify, whether universally or existentially, over everything whatsoever. If you say that every dolphin is a mammal, you're making a claim about everything whatsoever, according to this way of analyzing the statements. And if you say that some dolphin is smart, you're saying that everything whatsoever does include this one thing, which is both of those. The ontological pluralist, because they think that fundamentally there are different ways of existing, thinks that we need more than one type of quantifier. Perhaps the easiest to understand motivation is the idea that concrete things and abstract objects are fundamentally different and you should have one quantifier that ranges over concrete objects another one that ranges over abstract objects so we'd use the concrete quantifier in saying that some man is seven feet tall and we would use the abstract domain quantifier to say that some property isn't had by anything Never mind if that's true or false, the idea is just that it's not right to treat these truly different domains as if they were one domain. As far as relative identity solutions, he mentions that pretty quickly. These have been discussed on the podcast before, specifically in podcast 68, Dr. Harriet Baber on relative identity and the Trinity. Or you could Google Trinity Stanford and look at my encyclopedia entry description of relative identity approach to the Trinity. Relative identity says that things can be numerically the same something and numerically different something else. So the father and son are numerically different persons, according to this understanding, but they are numerically the same being or numerically the same God. He also quickly mentions anti-realism. In the context of metaphysics, anti-realism is the belief that there isn't an objective single reality out there. Rather, there are just different realities created or somehow the product of our own minds or our own perspectives. Most people are not anti-realists. They think that reality just is what it is and it doesn't depend on us or our perspectives for how it is. And pretty clearly, Trinitarian theology assumes that this is describing how God really is and not simply how God appears from a certain perspective. Finally, he mentions Leibniz's Law. Leibniz's Law is also called the indiscernibility of identicals. Leibniz's Law is simply the idea that if any x and y are numerically one, then they can't differ in any way. They can't even possibly differ. One way to put it is that numerical identity forces total sameness. Another way to put it would be any kind of difference implies that these things we're talking about really are two things and not numerically one thing. I've done several posts about Leibniz's Law or the indiscernibility of identicals, so you can check out those links on the blog post for this episode. Without further ado, then, I turn it over to Mr. Arender. He gives a nice, clear, but quick presentation, and then he has a lot of back and forth with some philosophers in the audience, including me. One last thing, the handout for this presentation is on the blog post for this episode also. And it may help you to follow his presentation if you have this PDF in front of you.
2: So, I'm going to talk about ontological pluralism and the Trinity. Ontological pluralism is a view that there are different ways to exist, multiple ways to exist. And how it relates to the Trinity, I think it solves the logical problem of the Trinity. Kind of in short, the idea is God exists in one way as Trinity and in a different way as unity. And before we get to the actual solution, we should talk about what the problem is. The Athanasian Creed gives us an inconsistent triad. It tells us that there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are each God, and there's exactly one God. So that seems kind of weird. If the three are God, how can there be one God? Seems like bad counting. So more formally, on your handout where P stands for is a person, G stands for whatever divine attributes are necessary and sufficient to be a God, lowercase letters FSH stand for the names Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've got two statements that come from that. First one says uh, there are three things, persons, distinct God, and uh, they're each the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the second one says there's exactly one God. Notice though that the existential quantifiers are the Good old humdrum, backwards Z, all the stuff we're very familiar with, uh, the most inclusive quantifier. So ontological pluralism, the view that there's multiple ways to exist, why should we believe it's true? Chris McDaniel, Jason Turner, they've got lots of papers defending it. Ben Kaplan has a cool paper. The nice like first third of it deals with history. So check those out. Uh, we can talk more in the Q and A if you want about ontological pluralism. I'm going to just assume it's true and see what we can do with the Trinity given its truth. So that doesn't mean that there's not an intuitive case to be made for it. Um, If you guys have ever spoken with undergrads and asked them, hey, do numbers exist? And they're like, well, yeah. And then if you say, hey, do tables exist? like, yeah. And then you ask, well, do they exist in the same way? They're much more hesitant to say yes. That's because it seems that abstract objects like numbers, concrete objects like tables, they exist in different ways. Uh, You might also think fissures, cracks, Holes, shadows, these kinds of things exist to a lesser degree than you or I, tables, chairs, so on and so forth. So there's some reason to think that ontological pluralism might be true, and then there's a better, longer defense in McDaniel and Turner. So how exactly does the solution work? Well, we have some expressions, like being electron, that reveal the ontological structure of the world better than other expressions, such as being an electron or being Obama. Theories that best reveal the ontological structure of the world are ones that use these kinds of expressions, the ones that are best at revealing the ontological structure. And if there are multiple ways to exist, we have to account for that in these expressions. We have to account for different ways of existing in these theories that are supposed to reveal ontological structure of the world. One way to do that is by accepting multiple existential quantifiers. There's another way to do it uh, that Turner talks about with names. We can talk about that later if you want. I don't know it very well because I don't know what it's based on very well. The idea here is let's introduce delta as the quantifier that ranges over the domain of divine persons. Let omega be the existential quantifier ranging over the domain of God existing as unity. And then we can take one and two above... That inconsistent triad squished into two statements. We can take those and reformulate them with these different existential quantifiers. So, for three, we've got instead of the good old humdrum backwards Z, we've got deltas thrown in there. For four, instead of good old humdrum backwards Z, we have omega thrown in there, and inconsistency is avoided. So, when the Athanasian Creed says that each person is God, it's talking about the divine person's domain. When the Athanasian Creed says that God is a unity, it's talking about the omega domain. So far, though, this only has gotten us three and one, but we want three in one. We want unification of some sort. I think the best thing to say, or at least the best thing I can think of to say, is that, well, there is a unity. There's a domain in which it's unified, and there's no deeper explanation than that. Uh, See the footnote, though, for an undeveloped idea. Maybe there's something along those lines that could work out, I'm not too sure. But I think the ontological prologue should say something like that, that a domain in which God exists as unity is all we need in explanation of how the three persons are unified. All right, so is this just a relative identity solution? Well, yeah, you've got the three persons are distinct relative to divine person's domain, that is to say, same God, different persons. Should that bother us? Well, it might bother you to accept relative identity if you think that it commits us to anti-realism. That wouldn't be any good. It's also problematic if it's just straight up unintelligible. To the first, to against anti-realism, I don't think that ontological pluralism commits us to that because relative identity isn't a feature of our language. It's relative to domains. It's not a predicate used in our language based on our theory and all that kind of stuff. The second problem, is it unintelligible? I don't think so. I mean, we've given a supplemental story here on how ontological pluralism can make sense of it. So I think those two worries aren't very good for the ontological pluralist to think about. Seems like they have uh, ready answers to them. But maybe ascending to relative identity is too quick. So Ray talked about two things that the absolutist about identity needs for the relation, the identity relation to count as absolute. One is that statements of the form X is identical to Y are well-formed on their own. They don't need to be relativized to anything else, any kind of sortle. It also needs to obey Leibniz's law. The reason why it might be too quick to assent relative identity is that Leibniz's law is a universally quantified statement. The universal quantifier there, we have to get clear on what quantifier is doing the work for Leibniz's Law. Is it the most inclusive quantifier? Is it a restricted or more exclusive quantifier of some sort? There's stuff there to think about. I think, though, what's going on is just relative identity, so I don't have anything in this handout or the paper that says too much about Leibniz's Law, but it's something interesting to think about. So what about polytheism and monotheism? It seems like if we are going to accept these two domains, delta and omega, as fundamental, then what we're accepting as fundamental is polytheism and monotheism. That seems problematic. We're monotheists. It's very important. But fundamentally, monotheism is true. Should it bother us that fundamentally, polytheism is true? I don't think so. If you have social Trinitarian leanings, maybe that won't bother you either. But there's another issue here about counting. If we accept that monotheism and polytheism are both fundamentally true, do we get four gods? Are there four gods? I don't think so. I think that to say there are four gods is to use a quantifier, there are, that isn't fundamental. It's to use one defined up probably by disjunction, with the delta and omega quantifiers. What we can say is fundamentally true is that there are three gods and there is one god. And so long as we don't use one quantifier to say both of those, so long as we don't say both of those in the same breath, then I don't think we have a problem with counting. There aren't four gods, fundamentally speaking. There are three and there are one you might think that a good way to avoid saying that polytheism is fundamentally true is to say that the divine person's domain in some way depends on God existing as a unity, on the omega domain. If we do that, I think we run into a domain-based subordinationism. And we don't want persons depending on God. That's no good. That's heretical. So we need to avoid that.
0: Okay, good. Thank you. know um, the model is a good one, but I am puzzled by something that I think um, is not unreasonable to assume, but it worries me. Okay, And so you have this description when we're talking about how the solution works that basically an expression like being an electron versus a disjunctive expression mm-hmm. like being an electron or being Obama mm-hmm. does something reveals the structure of ontological reality. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a claim about the epistemic and its relationship to the ontological. And the first thing I'm puzzled by is I don't know how this is supposed to work. What is it that
2: this to Does the revealing, or? Well,
0: yeah.
2: Why like, how do we latch that, onto it?
0: That um, one expression, being an electron, is more uh, revealing uh, of the nature of ontological reality than this other expression. The okay. second question is. Even if I grant that with respect to talking about natural kinds and this sort of ordinary approach in sort of buying say a Lewisian picture where, well, the reason that relationship holds is because we know about science and other ways in which we've discovered reality by using those expressions in that way. Um, I'm puzzled about how that's supposed to apply basically to your argument about pluralism and the Trinity. How do I get that epistemically revealing relationship to the structure of ontological reality? And in particular, how do I get it with respect to Trinity and unity because that one in fact, you even said, well, actually, um, we don't find out about how Trinity and Unity works. And so I'm puzzled about how this revealing relation is supposed to work on this account. Yeah, okay. Let me it, give it back to you and see if, I, if I've got the
2: question. You have being an electron and being an electron or being Obama. And the claim is that the former reveals the ontological structure of reality better than the latter. And the way it reveals or something is something epistemic about us and how we not use, but There's something about being an electron that reveals to us. There's an epistemic relation between us and ontology that that's supposed to be working that this other one's not supposed to be doing for us. That was the first part, right? Yeah, and and I'm just drawing the standard.
0: There's been lots of debates about like how does reference mechanism work and what's going on, et cetera. We could talk more about that. There's a very standard picture there. There's some mystery. I think it's still mysterious. But what I'm worried about is that very mystery gets massively amplified in the picture that you're describing. So I wanted to hear how you were going to try to...
2: So, yeah, give me the last bit again, because I was trying to sort out the first saw, bit, and then...
0: Okay, so the second part. So what, okay. what you need to say, right, is to say, well, look, something like this This structure is also going to be... Present the, in the, the trin- trin- here. Uh-huh. Um And that is, I think, especially interesting when we're talking about the epistemic grasp we have on the nature of, like, divine reality. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. And then the further... Problem or question or whatever I had was maybe I can understand how we um, sort of straightforwardly think about um, the different three three different gods onto, you know Okay, but then how do I do the three in one? And in particular, that's the place where things get really messy. And I was especially worried because you said, well, we just kind of accept that, or there isn't any explanation there. But then hmm. I think, well, then I really lost my grasp on how I'm supposed to get from my epistemic position to, to you know grasping the deep structure of ontological reality.
2: That's a really good question. <laughs> So when it applies to like the divine stuff, divine reality, yeah, no, I don't have to think more about that. That's yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I just it's more of a clarification question. Yeah.
3: I was wondering why you thought that um, making the delta domain more fundamental than the omega domain led you to subordinationism. I maybe I don't understand enough about subordination. I thought that was the view that the father created the son or something like that. Because if you just say, oh being, you know, like a God as a unity or whatever is more fundamental than this, you know, three-person
2: stuff. I just wasn't clear how that would... Get uh, you subordination? Yeah, so subordination is, in my ticket, is that you've got the Son being created from the Father, uh, establishes this kind of dependence on the Father for the Son. And then maybe you've got the Holy Spirit proceeding, all of that. So I think that if there's anything going on with the divine person's domain and the omega domain like that, some kind of dependence, then I don't think it's just a matter that one's more fundamental than the other. I think the other is coming out of the more fundamental one is depending on it, which we don't want. We don't want the three persons to depend on God in some way like that.
3: Well, I guess I was just thinking that the nice thing about it, about this sort of view is that you don't have to say anything about creation because you can say like, oh, I have this other notion of like ontological dependence. Yeah. It's not like there's causation involved or anything like that. I mean, so I just thought, actually, it kind of gets you out of worries about like subordinationism. I mean, because even on yeah. a kind of really sort of classical view of the Trinity, you're still going to have, there's still going to be dependence, really. I mean, there's like begetting or whatever. Right, yeah. So I just thought maybe it's not as much of a problem
2: for us. Well, I guess I was thinking of subordinationism as any kind of dependence is no good. But if it is just about mm-hmm. creation or something like that.
3: Well, cuz I mean, I was just thinking you don't want to say no
4: any kind of dependence is no good because you definitely on any you'd have some sort
2: We get of it with the cutting proceeding right? Yeah. So
4: yeah. Uh, something to think
2: about. Yeah, thank you.
5: think about absolutely unrestricted domains of discourse. I mean, so I take it that what you're going to say is that uh, there is not, at least not a fundamental absolutely unrestricted domain of discourse, right? You have Mm -hmm. these different fundamental domains of discourse Mm -hmm. and any other constructed domain is like a a non-fundamental disjunctive domain or something like that. Right, yeah. I worry if that really... Uh, Makes good sense. I mean, so I I would imagine someone like Van Inwigen would want to say, well, no, it it is fundamental. That absolutely unrestricted domain is fundamental. It's just whatever you can ascribe the number one to, right? Why think that that isn't fundamental? Why think that's not a fundamental domain? Van Inwigen is going to say, look, what is is existence? It's just the number one to say say there is one dinosaur say that there is a god is to say the number of gods is at least one.
2: Yeah, there's this connection between number and existence. Saying there's exactly one, we're using identity, we're using the existential yeah. quantifier. Yeah. identity, or identity comes along for, for in, in the bargain. Right, right, yeah. So let me get the question back and see if I've got it. We've got this connection between the totally unrestricted domain and throw identity in there. And then it seems like we've got numbering things, and Van Wagen would say, to exist is to be one, something like that. Right? So McDaniel and Turner differ on this. So McDaniel says there's maybe oneness, two-ness, three-ness is said in different ways. Maybe there are different ways of being numbered. And then Turner says, well, maybe the numbers aren't said in different ways. Maybe it's just the numbering relation, that there are just different numbering relations. So those are the two options. Both seem sort of rough. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are what they would say to it, that there are different ways of being, one, so, two, three, so on and so forth.
5: Are you saying something similar to, to what, what like, Geach says about relative identity, that when I say the number of, do, the number of things in this room is four, I have no idea whether you're, you've spoken truly or falsely until you're telling me implicitly what you're counting as a thing, something like that? Yeah. So relative identity, people think the identity sign is not meaningful just by itself. You right, you've got to throw head something head else on top to of what, it. what you're counting identity by. Yeah, Turner and and McDaniel saying, I don't know what you mean by saying there are four until you tell me four what's or something?
2: I don't think so. I think that they aren't relative identity theorists. What they would say just is that the ways we number things can differ, which I don't really get what that would amount to, or that maybe there are different ways of being one, two, three, and so on. Both deal with Van Inwagen's kind of objection that existence and number are intimately tied to say that there are no unicorns is just to say that the number of unicorns is zero. So, yeah, I maybe check those out. But they, that's what they seem to say. But I'm not too sure, which I, the Turner stuff seems weird. But the McDaniel, like one, two, three is said in different ways, also seems weird. I'm okay. not sure which way to go. And,
5: and would I mean would Van Inwagen just say yeah? And it seems weird
1: because
2: it the, is the notion yeah. of absolutely
5: unrestricted domain is pretty clear and perspicuous. Right. Though. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Trying, to don't, trying to deny an absolutely clear and perspicuous notion leads you to right. weird things.
2: Right. Yeah. I think that's that's right.
5: <laughs> well, but if Van Inwagen's right about that point, though, you're back to having four gods.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how the ontological proof would. I mean, they would go with either Turner or McDaniel and then. They would avoid it somehow. I, just, I don't get the different ways of numbering, and I don't get different ways of being a number. But those are the available solutions. So they would go with one of them and say, well, you don't get four gods if they're also one of being a Trinitarian. You don't get four gods because we've got these ways of understanding numbers, and that's how we differ from, from Ben and
1: Thanks for this, Aaron. I just wanted to ask you if, if orthodoxy is a desideratum, how can it be allowable to say that it's a fundamental truth that there are three gods? It seems like you're not right, supposed yeah. to
2: say that or believe it. Yeah, or, we're not supposed to be polytheists.
1: And I mean, is there any way to connect the idea of domain relativity to, you know, something... I, I suspect they might be ontological pluralists, some of these, but they think the Trinity and, and God are sort of all at the top level, the highest degree of reality or something. Yeah. Some of these ancient, like, Platonist types. But anyway, like, how, how can that be orthodox just because you're saying monotheism? You're not supposed to be able to also say polytheism, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about polytheism and orthodoxy. I know it's bad. I know that much. It's no good. Uh, But I don't know why it's no good aside from it just being polytheism. I don't know if having polytheism at bedrock of reality and monotheism bedrock of reality is a heterodox. Uh, We get monotheism. We get what we want. And I'm not sure if having polytheism as well would be problematic, given that we are going to also have monotheism. So the relationship between the two, it's bad to say, oh, polytheism is true. But if monotheism is also true, is it as bad as it was?
1: There's a big strand of the tradition, which this is in the William Wainwright SCP entry on monotheism, Uh but I've seen it as far back as Tertullian. There's this tradition of thinking that if it's the type of God that... uh, Christians and Jews are talking about, and that it's a contradiction for there to be more than one of those. Mm-hmm. So then polytheism would just be a necessary falsehood. Yeah. That's not in the creeds, but I think it's background assumption that no necessity there can be at most one
2: God. I wonder if something like what number two or three? Something? something where if we can get the divine person's domain to not be fundamental, if it can be somehow uh, dependent on the omega domain without itself being at the better cover of reality, then we could probably avoid the polytheism problem. But I have to think more about that and subordinationism and all, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if we want this then to, to be more than just a merely logical solution, to be like actually like the right way to understand it. How do you come up with domain relativity from anything old?
2: Yeah, so I don't know if it's going to give us, like, that. I'm not sure if ontological proliferative is going to give us any kind of understanding. I do think it's probably a merely formal solution. I think that it's a nice one. It does resolve the logical problem of the Trinity in that one and two on the first page are no longer inconsistent. So that's nice, but I'm not sure it's going to reveal God's nature or things like that, which then may run me into some weird problems of, well, if we're going to base this on theories that reveal ontological structure, seems like we're really committing ourselves to having some kind of understanding of the divine nature through this, but...
1: Yeah, but it only solves the problem about one and two if three and four are like permissible interpretations of one and two, you know? Yeah. Or even the right interpretation.
2: Yeah. So when you say permissible, that we understand what's going on in 3 and 4, that they have meaning we can glom on to?
1: It looks like you can't defend a set of claims just by saying, well, if it means this, then it's con- then it's consistent. Why should anybody think it means that? Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you just changing the subject? Yeah. You've got to have some connection between them, right? But this is the best way to understand the original. Right. If we can't find a way to get this before the 20th century, that's a little disappointing. We're
2: in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I haven't read Aquinas, but apparently he accepts that God's goodness, our goodness are different. So there might be some historical precedent for taking some of these claims to fall under a pluralist kind of line. But I do think that you're right in saying to make it permissible, we have to show how it's going to connect to Athanasian Creed or just these creeds in general. I think they do. I think that if ontological pluralism is true, then one of the most natural ways of understanding the Athanasian creed is to read it
1: like this. So it's just that a charitable read of the Athanasian creed brings in domain relativity.
2: Seems plausible given that you think ontological pluralism is true.
6: I do think you will want run into problems if you take either of these domains to be non-fundamental.
2: You say will or won't? Will. Will. Okay.
6: Because certainly if, you know, there is one god but non-fundamentally, that that doesn't but also if you say there are three divine persons but non-fundamentally, then again, well, that could fall into some kind of modalism or, you know, It might not be subordinationism, the the, the heresy you end up with, but but sometimes... But you
2: still get heresy somehow. yeah.
6: Yeah. But then my worry is, so then if both domains need to be fundamental, but they're different, by making this difference, one, at the fundamental metaphysical level, you've really made things worse, not better. What we want is that... Fundamentally, God is one in three divine persons. And how, how does that, you know, how does that work? It's really hard to say, but that might be more of a ha- having to do with epistemic issues for human beings. But on your solution, metaphysically, there fundamentally are these two different layers of reality. The one God and the three divine persons layer. And if it turns out metaphysically, there's no further explanation or connection between those domains. Then it seems like your your theory is not just denying our access in this life, but denying that metaphysically there's any any you know um, satisfying relation or or could be between.
2: The yeah. Three. So if you've got two domains, both at bedrock, and there's no real connection between them, not only do we lose access here, but there just isn't going to be any because they're distinct domains. There's no. Yeah. We need a, a. This is an ontolo-
6: the way things are ontologically,
2: and yeah. not
6: just a problem. Are, are knowledge or
2: something. So I think domains can overlap and I think that you have actual concrete things and actual abstract things. So this table, for instance, is going to be an actual thing and a concrete thing. And if we suppose that actuality and concreteness are two different domains, it seems like there's one thing in both of them. I think something similar is going on with these two domains, but I haven't like, seen my way through it yet. But it does seem that all the divine stuff is just in these two domains. There's nothing divine outside of it. And there's some kind of connection, it seems, going on there. I'm not sure what. But I think it's analogous to actual concrete things. I think there's some kind of analogy to be drawn from that. That's what I'm trying to sort out, is how do we get these two domains to play nice with each other?
6: Yeah, I think, that, I think that's what you need for this proposal, too, is some real connection between
2: them. Yeah. I was wondering yeah.
6: if you had any reasons given from experience for
2: believing in either of the demands. In the Bible, you've got Christ, you've got God, you've got the Holy Spirit. It seems like we've got three persons there that we need to account for. And then, throughout the Old and New Testaments, we've got Yahweh, we've got God, and seems like it's referring to the Father. But then people seem to have experiences of God as a unity. It could be that they're having experience of, say, just the Father, but not as like, presented as the Father or something like that. So yeah, I think that you could probably have experiences of both, but I'm not sure if your God as a unity experience would be really just God as the Father or God as the Son or the Holy Spirit or something like that. But it seems like people could have an experience of God as a unity that's just presented as like God and it not being either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So I think there might be reason to believe both, that both domains are something we have to account for.
7: I have a question about the Omega domain. You describe it as a domain in which God exists as a unity. I guess I'm just not totally sure what how we're supposed to understand that. So the idea of a divine person's domain makes sense. It makes sense that that would be fundamental, I guess, somewhat plausible. But I guess I'm just wondering how we we would describe this other domain in a maybe more neutral way. I don't know how to put the point exactly. But just say, I mean, you can say there's a domain where I exist as an animal and a domain where I exist as a shadow. You can say that. It would be a strange way of describing the domain of, it's just my shadow or something like that. So I don't know. Do you have anything to say about kind of the, the general you know, necessary and sufficient conditions for being in the
2: Omega domain? Yeah. I think it's sufficient to be in it if your God is a unity. What God is a unity is, I'm not too sure about. So like kind of intuitively, This yeah. is a unity. Right. It's not just like
7: a lump of stuff. Yeah. Um, and
2: it's That'd dying. be bad if you were a lump of stuff. So, It'd be not good.
7: So would Christ be in <laughs> I mean, you don't want
2: Christ... <laughs> I, in I got you, yeah. So I think that Whatever's in that domain is just gonna be the three persons characterized somehow as the divine stuff or something. And in this domain, they're just all squished into one. Something like that, which is more of the like, the lump of stuff stuff. But um, I don't think that really answers your question though. I mean, you're asking what is, what is it to be in that domain?
7: You could just have a domain of like, things that are identical to God. I don't know exactly how you define God, and then you might just say, that's the domain, and there's like one thing in that domain.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
7: <laughs> you can have a domain of things that can be like, you know, is God can truly be predicated of or
1: is divine, and you've got three things in that domain.
7: And yeah it kind of makes sense, I, I guess. I mean I've thought it thought it through. If you don't go that way, then I'm just wondering how you describe the Omega domain.
2: So I think that if you go with something like that, you know, you've got this domain where it's just everything that's identical to God and counted as one thing. There's something very social Trinitarian going on there. I don't know. I want a better unity. I want them to be in some like deeper sense unified rather than it just being pointed at the three things that are God. And there you go. We're just going to count that as one, a society, a group, whatever. I guess I'd want something more than that, but I don't know, aside from saying, look, God just exists as a unity in this domain. I'm not sure there's much more to say than that, because I'm not sure that it's within our kin. I, I think it might be a little bit past it. So to say that there's this domain out there that unifies, I'm not sure there could be a deeper explanation than that, and I'm not sure even how to make sense of that, but I think that that's what we're committed to if we're gonna have exactly one God, yet the three persons are God.
7: When we're saying God exists as a unity in this domain, and God exists as a trinity in that domain, then it's just starting to sound like we're talking about there's this thing, that's in both domains. And I know you were saying you were sort of open to that earlier, but unless you want to identify God, the trinity, with God the Father, it's a little hard to see how you could say there was something in both domains.
2: Like some one thing in both domains? I
7: mean, that certainly couldn't be a fundamental truth. In the sense, you know, God exists as a trinity and God and also as a unity. I mean, I guess we're speaking there with quantifiers wide open. Right. To be a fundamental truth. And then I'm just a little worried that God exists as a unity in this domain. Like, how to exactly understand what that claim is.
2: Yeah.
4: A problem is worse than you've admitted. Oh no. Because not only if you're making both the delta and the omega domains uh, fundamental, not only is it will it be fundamentally true that polytheism is true and that monotheism is true, it will be fundamentally true that polytheism is true and monotheism isn't, and it will also be fundamentally true that monotheism is true and monotheism uh,
2: isn't. Yeah.
4: And that I think is going to be skating even, even closer to the heterodox line, however you going to want to draw that. Uh, since they are pretty clear
2: yeah. that
4: polytheism isn't true, and they're pretty clear that monotheism is, uh-huh. and if you're getting to say all of these things fundamentally because you've kind of messed around with the quantifiers, uh, I don't think the church fathers would have liked that.
2: And yeah, they get their rods up. Yeah, that's a good point. So fundamentally, if it's true, polytheism is true, then fundamentally it's true that polytheism is true and monotheism is false, and it's also fundamentally true that monotheism is true and polytheism is false. Yeah, that's a really good point.
4: Building on that, you could have people who know that polytheism is true and monotheism isn't because they're not acquainted with the omega domain mm-hmm. and kind of vice versa. And it, I suspect it will be difficult not to make a hash out of religious disagreement about the number of gods if you go with a route like this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a pretty good objection yeah. to it.
5: I wanted to just ask you or advise you to say a little bit more about what you've said here in footnote one, that somehow maybe there's a way that the, the divine attributes would fit together the two domains. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what which divine attribute you had in mind there. I mean, is it something like divine simplicity that you're thinking about, or? or?
2: Uh, maybe, yeah. If simplicity is a divine attribute, then that seems like a pretty good candidate for what could combine both domains, the stuff in both domains. But the idea was just, you have all this divine stuff, Whatever that is and all the exemplifications of the divine attributes are just in that stuff and They happen to be the same exemplifications in both domains because it's the same stuff. That's the idea It's undeveloped. So I don't know how to make sense of it
5: yeah, I guess that's my worry is that I mean, I'm, I'm sort of unclear how even something like divine simplicity is going to work here because and It's like asking, you know I've seen all the buildings here in New Brunswick, but someone, nobody's shown me the university, right? I mean, it looks like you've got these two different quantifiers. There's not a knitting together of things in different categories, right? You just have mm-hmm. category mistakes, yeah, right? Um, if you use a divine attribute to knit the two domains together via a category mistake, I mean, it's just as true to knit them apart with a category mistake too.
2: Right, yeah. Are, are these
5: the same things we're talking about? Sure. Are they different things we're talking about? Sure, why not?
2: Cool, thank you. That's a good objection, I'll have to think more about that. Yeah, I want to press a little bit on the idea that uh, the
8: delta and omega domains really will be more fundamental. I mean, you've motivated that with the electron obama case there. But I mean, so it's more illuminating to say of something that it's an electron than that it is an electron or obama. Mm -hmm. So that sounds fine, but suppose I define a quantifier, right, so something exists if it's so it's disjunctive, right? So if a Delta exists or Omega exists, I mean, why wouldn't that, even though it's defined out of the other two, still be a more fundamental thing? I've just got these different, when I start looking at the fine grade structure of reality, I'll want to perhaps stick to, you know, the one modifier some of the time, the other the other. Yeah. But still, why wouldn't I have a more fundamental disjunctive quantifier?
2: Yeah, so if you join Delta and Omega domains, doesn't that lead to a more fundamental one where we've somehow captured both? If we were to disjoin them and say something exists such that it's either here or there, we have to disambiguate when we get to the meaning of it. What are we saying? Well, we're saying it's gonna be here, maybe, or it's gonna be here, maybe it'll be in both. So that we have to disambiguate just to understand that quantifier, a uh, disjoint quantifier. I think that gives us reason to think that it's not gonna be more fundamental. We shouldn't have that kind of ambiguity in fundamental quantifiers. We shouldn't have to go to the more exclusive domains and then sort out which one the thing is actually in.
8: Maybe you can help me. Here's an example, right? Yeah. So let's just say there are abstract objects, there are concrete objects. I'm inclined to think that they are just the one quantifier underneath. There are things that exist. There are different kinds of things that exist, certainly. So if I want to talk about abstract objects, I'll talk about their abstractness. But fundamentally I want to be able to say in my ontology that there are concrete and abstract objects, so I can only make that statement
2: in the same uh, with the wide open breath. Yeah.
8: If I have different qualifiers, it'll be with the disjunctive
2: Yeah, so the idea I think is you have um Let's take abstract and concrete things and there's just one underlying quantifier, just the one. That's it. And they both exist and we can say there are abstract things and concrete things under the same quantifier just because, well, it's disjoint. It fits. I think what bugs me about it would be that you've got one existential quantifier and then restricting predicates and you have to restrict to abstract stuff or to concrete stuff and you're gonna buy the existential quantifier and all these restricting predicates. That seems like you're committing to more than just buying multiple quantifiers. You at least have one thing more, namely the existential, the unrestricted existential quantifier. So that would be one reason for thinking, well, no, they're not gonna be more fundamental. It commits us to more, and it seems like fundamental stuff is supposed to commit us to less. Well, what do you think about that?
8: So, uh, deny me the, the destructive quantifier and fundamentally I can say that there are abstract objects. I can say that there are concrete ones. What I want to say is that you know, in my ontology, there are both of these things. Is that fact somehow sort of less fundamental? I mean, I guess it just seems more fundamental to me. It's sort of this is my new picture of reality. I mean, you're going to need restricting predicates regardless, right? I mean, so I don't think you're going to have an additional cost one view or the other there. To me, it just seems better off to say, look, if I need different domains, I'm going to have the one quantifier, and then I'll just use restricted predicates to separate this domain from that domain. That seems simpler
2: to me. But to me, it seems like it is less revealing. It doesn't seem like having a quantifier defined up by disjunction is going to really capture the joints of nature. So it, it seems to me the opposite.
3: I guess my question is about overlapping domains, because you say something in your first paragraph on page 2 about how the different quantifiers range over different domains, but it seems that if the domains overlap perfectly, then there wouldn't be two separate quantifiers it would just be the same quantifier. Hmm. And so my question is, like: in what sense are these domains not perfectly overlapping?
2: So if it's the same stuff in both of them, perfectly overlap, it's yeah. going to be the same quantifier. Yeah. Say that... Abstract stuff doesn't exist. And then we just have concrete stuff and actual stuff. It seems like they would perfectly overlap, but not be the same quantifier. There'd still be one way of existing, namely concrete stuff, another way, actual stuff. But it seems like if you go that route, you're saying that it's, I don't know. First, what do you think about that? Does that seem like it would?
3: I don't think those perfectly overlap. No? Because I think that there are probably.
2: Possible concrete stuff, yeah. Yeah. Suppose there weren't. (laughs) Would that then be one domain? There's There's just one way of being there? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me. I think that we could understand actual concrete things, even if those were the only things out there. No abstract, no possible. And you want to say one domain, it seems like we could understand that whatever's in that domain better if we had two quantifiers, two domains of stuff we understand it being actual, we understand it being concrete. Rather than saying, well, we understand it just in this one way, as this like actual concrete mixture. So I think that would be a good reason to take even perfectly overlapping domains as maybe having two domains overlapping rather than just one being there.
7: Well, I guess maybe I wanna hear a little bit more about what it means for domains to overlap. I I thought you would have said, they don't have the same domain. There's exactly one thing in the omega domain and exactly three things in the delta domain.
2: Yeah, so they, they don't overlap? They don't overlap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they might overlap, but they don't exactly overlap. Yeah. It's going stuff. That's a serious problem. <laughs> right. I
7: guess I mean, <laughs> no, is a serious problem. Right.
2: You got to pick which serious problem, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, I do think to say that there would be distinct, would be to say there's no connection, which I want, but I don't, overlapping, I don't know, I need to think more about perfectly overlapping domains just being the same domain. That seems right, but I need to think more about it. So yeah, I think that either way you go, there's probably going to be something bad, which is no good. Yeah. Thank you, guys.
1: This week's Thinking Music has been the track Paper Planes by Durden featuring Airtone.